All right. Well, Rana Epting, it is so good to have you on the Common Good Podcast. I am personally thrilled. I think you know that I'm a big fan of you and a big fan of your work and, and all that you're up to. So thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. So look, so many people know Move On. If you're in the spaces where we are and you talk about politics and culture and policy and social movements, boy, moveon.org is, uh, is one of those. I mean, it's, it, I actually use it as a little phrase when I want people to start, you know, like, Hey, we got to go. I'm like, Hey, let's move on.org here. Let's get, let's get it rolling. <laughs> uh, it is just part of the cultural, uh, uh cultural known, uh, landscape. Um, what don't we know about, uh, move on if somebody's like, Hey, I think I know what move on does. Uh, what, when, yeah. as the executive director, what, what do you know about it that you wish all the rest of us knew? Well, that's a great question. You know, um, we are 25 years old, so we have a relatively long history. And depending on when folks have engaged with Move On, we've been different things to different people. Um, but at the heart of who we are, we are a rapid response political campaigning organization. And our role is to mobilize the masses for collective action to drive people first change in this country. And that's what we've been doing for 25 years. But a story I like to tell about who is Move On um, is the one around who Move On is to me. And that was back in uh, 2001, to late 2001, early 2002, right after 9-11, um, when George W. Bush was very intent around marching this country towards war with Iraq. Uh, I was in law school in Portland, Oregon, and head down in my books and kept hearing uh, reports on the news about weapons of mass destruction. And I kept saying to my roommate, this doesn't make any sense to me. It feels <laughs> it's not passing muster. Uh -huh. And why are we going to war with Iraq when those who attack the World Trade Center, it just all sounded really fishy, but I felt very naive. I was a young you know, 20 something year old going to school. I didn't know anything about foreign policy or war or anything like that. Um, and so I just went about my business feeling, what do I know about this? Mm. But very uneasy about what I was hearing from our president at the time. And I got an email from an organization called Move On and they invited me to attend a protest in downtown Portland, Oregon against the march to war with Iraq. And I thought, oh, wow. Okay, other people agree with me. This is interesting. So as a Portlander does, I got on my bike and I rode down <laughs> to the protest. Perfect. And the streets were packed, like hmm. thousands of people. Just, you couldn't even see the street. It was filled with people from hmm. all, all through downtown. And in that moment, I no longer felt naive. Wow. I felt righteous and I no longer mm. felt alone. I realized there wow. are thousands in Portland. And then if you watch the news that night, there were tens or hundreds of thousands across the country mm. that also agreed that we shouldn't be going to war with Iraq. So that's what started my political activism in the national landscape. Mm. I realized, oh, when we all join together and do things as as a group, our, you know, our voices are so powerful now. Unfortunately, the U.S. went to war with Iraq, but yeah. 
but they did so without the credibility and the support of the of, of a huge swath of the American public. And eventually it led to us finally getting out of Iraq um, years and years later. But, you know, that that is the power of move on to me. And it's about yeah, that's no great. matter where you live in the country, you can take action with thousands or millions of others together to well, make right on the, the values you have. And I'm guessing you didn't hop on your bike and be riding back to wherever you were living and think, you know, someday I'm going to be the executive director. No, I definitely did not think that. <laughs> it, it probably was the furthest thing, furthest thing from your mind. I think what's really powerful about that, that story, and thanks for sharing that, is a lot of people think that politics is first about policy and about ideas and about say it this way or make this law. And so many people don't know policy or they don't understand it or they feel like it's more complicated than they're willing to work on. So they stay out. But that story indicates something I found true in my own life and I think is true in the work that we do, which is for a lot of people, the, the first step into civic engagement or political life is just with other people. Like you, you didn't go to that, to that march and all of a sudden say, oh, now I understand all the issues. I'm not naive about issues of war and international you know, uh, engagement. But you right. said, well, there's an us here and we are up to something. And there's a sense that we're doing something. Do you think that's true that politics for a lot of people, uh, they, they falsely believe it's about policy or policy limits them from getting engaged in, in political life or action? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, um, there is an elitism hmm. just period in society that prevents us from engaging in things that impact our lives. And um, as a trained lawyer, I think the law is a great example. It shouldn't be that hard to figure out what the law is and apply it and to litigate your case in court. But if you read, you know, legal opinions, they're so overly convoluted and using vocabularies that normal people don't use. And I think it's one, one of the reasons is to keep out lay folks from being able to, <clears throat> to practice law. Or, or to navigate the law on their own. And I think the same with policy. If policy doesn't actually respond to the needs of people, then who is it responding to? And so when it comes to something like war or foreign policy, we don't need to understand right. um, particular foreign policy treaties or what have you. We know at our core that killing people is wrong and we yeah. should only do it in matters of imminent self-defense. And there are a number of other ways to prevent war in this world. Um, so I think sometimes we let institutions such as policy or law or government intimidate us. But in fact, mm -hmm. we as a people know what's right for one another and for our communities. And that's mm -hmm. what we should hold at the center of any anything we do. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I came into it. And what I'm reminded of every time maybe I'm faced with some convoluted legislative bill I need to read through that doesn't, you know, but it's like, wait, I have, I have a role here. And so do you, this should work for us, you know? Hey, look, so move on. It has an interesting history to it. Uh, the phrase, do I have this right? It was originally an effort to try to call people to move on after the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Is that? Is that the organization's yeah. roots and history? That is the roots. Um, our founders, Weston Joan Blades, uh, they lived in the Bay Area at the time. And 
Um, we saw Newt Gingrich and the Republicans at the time, you know, really politicize a very, very fragile uh, situation that was happening um, into an impeachment. But we knew that the, you know, the country had plenty of challenges to deal with. And Weston Jones just thought, let's censure Clinton and move on to the business of the country. And so they started an email and it turned into the first online petition um, wow. in the history. And it helped build the whole theory of change of who move on is today. I, I just find that to be fascinating. It's also, you know, we're living in an age where, you know, look at the things that have happened in the last 25 years, right? That it, it's just such a commentary on where things were in the, in the 1990s. I know. Remember, the, we didn't have email in our houses. <laughs> I, I had to go to the library, that. check my email. <laughs> totally. I mean, I remember uh, seeing the move on website somewhere in that period of time, early kind of websites. Like, how did they get it? And how did they have that? I think a little moving thing on there. Yeah. So it yeah. was very, very kind of front edge, but also was making a decision to be a kind of organization, like an email grassroots type of organization, which it seems like even though there's a long 25 year history and a bit of a, you know, a founder of a kind of new social political movement, it's, it's stuck with that, with that same, um, same approach. Is that, is that right? Do you feel like it still has that, uh, that impetus to it, that it's, it's trying to get people to care about the things that we all think should be important and, and, and invite people into that? Yeah, I mean, one of the the principles of Move On is that we build political power independent of the establishment. Now, mm. we may believe one party might have more promise <laughs> than another in this country in terms of being able to eventually one day really represent the needs of the people, but we can't depend on the Democratic Party or the Republican Party to organize for the change that we need in this country, we have to do it ourselves. And so um, really the heart of who we are is independent of any establishment, we're gonna organize ourselves as a people to push for the change we believe we deserve. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that because there's a lot of people who think just assume that if they don't know like how the infrastructure of politics works and organizations and the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, like it's just hard to figure out kind of what's what and who's who and how this works. That, that move on is, while people might say, oh, it's a Democratic supporting organization or it's a left wing or it's a progressive group, mm -hmm. all of which I think are positive, positive phrases. <laughs> a lot of people use as, you know, as, as negative, negative terms. Um, but it's not a part of the Democratic system. It's you're not you're not tied in with the party and it's not doing the work of a party, uh, mm -hmm. particularly either at the local level or the, or the national level. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of points to make on that topic. Number one, um, the reality is we live in a two party system. Do we wish we lived in a multi-party system? I don't know. I do. <laughs> I think we'd have better choices and better options. But the reality is that American democracy is based on a two-party system. And so there are teams. Um, and the way we navigate the political waters is in recognition of that two-party system mm. and in recognition that the Republican Party in my lifetime has had very strong ties 
to a pretty radical right base, which now has fully taken a hold of the party itself. It used to just right. be like fringe part, but now like Trumpism is like the Republican party. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the Republican party now. I wish that wasn't the case. So unbelievable. And they've adopted it in, in that base. There are a lot of principles around that are anti-democratic yeah. um, and they have shown the proclivity to subvert democratic practices and principles or democracy itself mm. in order to retain power, raw power to create a country in the image that they believe it should be in. So we fully recognize that the democratic party, not perfect by any means, <laughs> but we believe when Democrats are in power, we have a more, uh, uh, a better organizing, a, a better landscape to organize on. Like mm -hmm. it is more mm -hmm. possible to achieve mm -hmm. policies that help regular people when Democrats are power. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Um, we had a Democratic House, Senate, and presidency in the last two years in 21, 22, but a very slim margin um, in the Senate and. President Biden was able to move a bunch of stuff that are that is going to deliver for communities and, and people across this country. But we couldn't, you know, we couldn't do everything we wanted. Um, so we really believe that it takes outside organizing, yeah. outside pressure to push those in power to do the thing <laughs> that people deserve. Um, mm. And without us, they're more inclined to listen mm. to those big dollars that are coming in to fund their campaigns, the corporate lobbyists that are paid tons of money to be in the, in the halls of Congress every single day. Um, so when people think about move on and think, oh, they're just a shit, they're like an arm of the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. I think it's because they see us more closely aligned with and organizing Democrats and mm -hmm. more against and opposed to Republicans because our analysis is um, that Democrats in power just gives us more possible terrain to organize, to, to drive the change that we believe in. Um, but we definitely think we have some work yeah. to do, um, with, um, with both parties, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And it really takes all those, all these kinds of groups and organizations to, to, to make it go that there's a belief that people have that like, I don't know, there's like a system and someone's in charge and the people who make the decisions have decided that politics are going to be like this. Right. And it's kind of like that because America is a people movement, uh, you know, effort, but it's not a person or two. There's no little back room where the small group of decision makers, it's really groups and individuals and efforts that are, that have to come together to, to make all this, make all this go. That's so true. One thing, you know, I often hear, well, if the Democratic Party could just do X and I'm like, who is the Democratic Party? Because there's like so many different entities that make up the Democratic Party and not one person is charged. One could argue one, one could argue President Biden is, but he can't. He's not all up in the weeds around what the DNC is doing or what the DCCC is doing or yeah. what you know, house leadership is doing. So I, I do, I totally agree. There's not one person in the back room holding all the strings. 
Although I have heard, but I can't speak from experience, I have heard in the Republican Party, it's a little bit more, Yeah. here's here's a directive, everyone go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, there might be um, an old, old man hoarder down in, in Florida yeah, that's, <laughs> that's barking the orders, it seems. You sort of wonder sometimes. Um, yeah. So I'm super interested to move on and what it does. I think the, the work is really inspiring to me and to the work that we do at Vote Common Good. I'm also really interested in in you, uh, how how you got into all this and how you're thinking about it. So let's start with sort of how are you feeling about things right now in the work that you do and like uh, just your view of the landscape of where we are as a country, not only internally in the U.S., but our influence, I don't know, internationally, like how are you feeling about it all? Yeah, big, big question. I mean, I've got my good version and my catastrophe version. So, (laughs) um, well, I'll say like, I do think American democracy is at a crossroads right now. And in particular, because one of the two major political parties in this country has been taken hostage by a very extreme right-wing base that is, you know, that parts of them were behind the January 6th insurrection, parts of, you know, part of a big majority of the Republican Party believes the 2020 election was rigged and believes in Donald Trump's big lie that he's been proselytizing. So I, I do think, so it's no longer, should I vote for the Republican or should I vote for the Democrat? Should I vote for the person who really wants democracy to work for people? Or should I vote for the person who is willing to destroy it in order to retain power. So that is very different than when I cast my vote, you know, back between um, in the in the 2008 yeah. election, you know, between Mitt, was it Mitt Romney and Barack Obama at the time, I think, or that's very different than when folks went to go vote for George W. Bush and not enough went to go vote for John Kerry. George W. Mm-hmm. Bush was totally down with upholding the pillars of democracy, <laughs> even though right. I didn't agree with him on almost everything else. Right. Yeah. So, there was a shared starting point at least that we should yeah. have democracy. So, so my my not joyful version is we are at a crossroads and it's very concerning. And the reemergence of white nationalism, of white Christian nationalism, of authoritarianism and fascist ideology should concern everyone. Everyone that believes that we can actually, which I believe, have a democracy that works for all of us. We can have a society where we're all welcome, we're all loved, where we take care of each other. That is my vision for the country. Um, And if, if you agree with that, then we are at a very concerning crossroads. My joyful opinion is we're winning. Um, even though it feels like sometimes we may not be because we've got to deal with this riffraff like Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boeber, and they won't go away. But we won in 2020. We defeated Donald Trump in 2020. Someone who was unwilling to leave the Oval Office. You know, we defeated him despite COVID, despite all these voting challenges, despite, you know, threats of political violence, we defeated Donald Trump and we elected a Democrat president, House and Senate winning. Yeah, in 2022, sure. we increased our margins in the Senate. And even though Republicans took the House, they were, took it by a 
far less margin than the political data proves they should have. So we beat historical odds in 22 and beat them again. So I just feel like, yes, we can feel it is unfor it is sad what is happening to the Republican Party. But at the same time, voters keep going to say, no, we don't want that. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, so can we we nerd out on on that that thing for a minute? Because I, I was reminded yesterday that there's 18 members of the House that are Republicans who won their seats in districts that Joe Biden won. And mm-hmm. so people were splitting tickets, right, in those in those places. And then, so as I think about making sure that Republicans have to sit it out for at least, you know, another decade of control because of the choices that they've chosen to make, you know, I feel mm-hmm. like a scolding, scolding parent, uh, like you just need to sit in the corner and not not have freedom for a while while you think <laughs> about what, what you chose to do. <laughs> so I don't want Republicans anywhere near any, uh, you know, levers of, of federal power. Yeah. But the fact that, okay, so 18 people uh, would have been enough, uh, like there was some work to do and some missed opportunity there. But then what happened, because the margins are so thin in the in the House, it's actually turned over power to this little fringy group of people. Like somehow it made it even worse that it was close in the actual ramifications of that, because people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and uh, other wackadoodles in my view, they have power now that they shouldn't have had. I don't know, had Republicans had 30 seat majority or something, right? They could have just marginalized those people. Isn't that kind of ironic and just sort of the thing about politics that technically Republicans won, but it doesn't feel like it because it was proof that the people don't want Republicans to be in charge because they should have had more seats just based on how things should have should have gone. But then they squeak it out. And then by squeaking it out, the people we don't want to have more power end up having more power. Like the irony of all that is just. just oh, my God. Progress. And the charades we saw in January when they tried to vote Kevin McCarthy in for speaker. How many times? Dozens of times. <laughs> I mean, just. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, uh, it makes me crazy. It, it makes me crazy, too. And it's it's sad. But I really think. So, yes the what you said about the margins is very true um but a couple things number one i think what we're seeing is a failure in leadership by republicans Mm. kevin mccarthy capitulated to the hostage taking that matt gates and and marjorie taylor green were doing and he did it out of fear he was afraid of the the maga base he was afraid of donald trump and he was too wedded to holding power um so he gave them what they wanted so they could continue to threaten him throughout his speakership. So they did this during the debt ceiling debate and they held the full faith and credit of the United States hostage in exchange for their cuts. By the way, all the cuts they got hurt regular people and our ability to make ends meet. And then you have, so the other point is these 18 Republicans that won in moderate districts what would have happened if they organized yes. against against the re- the extremists in their party and said, no, McCarthy, if you give that away, we're not going to deliver the votes for you. And instead, they just capitulated and rolled over. Yep. So and, and these folks are in districts that are very moderate. You know, the folks that voted mm-hmm. for these 18 moderate Republicans are pro-choice folks. And yet these folks are voting 
you know, pro-life. The people who voted for these moderate Republicans aren't into Trumpism. And yet these 18 Republicans are voting lockstep with Marjorie Taylor Greene every single vote. So like the job that the work that move on's doing is we're exposing these Uh Republicans who ran on moderate agendas, but are in fact voting hundred percent of the time on extremist positions uh, so that the voters there understand, unfortunately, at this moment in our, in our political history, a vote for a Republican in the house is a vote for the extremist policies of Martin Taylor Green because they're just voting in lockstep with them. Yeah, that's that's the reality. I, I, somewhere I don't know, somewhere in the mid or early two thousands. I don't know what what do you call the period of time from before two thousand ten? What 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 are those called? Like they're not the teens the happy or the twenties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so whatever. In that somewhere in that period, uh, it was yeah. becoming clear to me that maybe it's just my what was my age and sort of paying attention, but I could see the difference between people who thought about their vote as like a an act of personal expression versus people who saw their own vote for a legislator as a tool that they are given through a democracy in order to make an outcome happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I really like the kind of outcome-oriented view of, of voting that, you know, it's not your, it's not a social media post that you're doing where you're kind of expressing yourself. It's not, it's not a, a piece of artwork that demonstrates mm-hmm. your view on the world. It's not even a statement, really. It's a tool to make a certain thing happen because we choose to have a democratic system that gives power through representatives to to do certain things. And Mm -hmm. it just seems like there's a lot of people who are kind of awakening to the fact that that, what you just said that, oh, if I vote for somebody from this particular party, it's not only about that person I'm voting for and my statement that I'm making, but actually could have ramifications about a whole power structure and, and how it goes. So it feels like, I don't know, we, we always just need to keep reminding ourselves of how democracies work and kind of yeah. what what this all is. You, you, you know what I mean? And I know that for the majority of people, I don't know what it is, 85% of people who vote in America, they vote in situations where the outcome is likely already determined. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The person who's going to win, everyone can guess it before anybody votes, right? Like it's sort of determined. People could change it, but likely won't. And only a few seats are actually up in most legislatures, state legislatures, or even mayor races. I think, you know, it's just, it tends to be kind of settled already because of certain demographics and so on. But even so, right? Like, uh, I don't know. I think you make a really good point. I wish you could have talked to, you know, younger Rana back in my twenties. I volunteered and voted for Ralph Nader in what was that 24, no, 2004 election that ended up going for Kerry. And I did it because that's the person who embodied my values. Um, and I understand that, but what I didn't understand at the time is that it's a strategic political tool I've been given. Yeah. And that um, a protest vote uh, is only a protest vote. Um, and and I've learned since, you, you know, younger Rana thought, oh, well, Democrats will get the message if I give my protest vote and they'll try to, they'll try to um, do better next time. No, (laughs) it's not, it's not an effective tool to change the structural system. The protest doesn't do that. So, um, 
I do, I agree with you. I think people are starting broadly. I think people understand, have a, a more sophisticated political analysis of how power works in the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean everyone does. And like, as you're developing your own political analysis as a human being, mm -hmm. you know, I, I see how people want to make protest votes. Um, but it is unfortunate because it's not making the change I think people believe it's making when they do it. Yeah. And, and look, it's tough because we often don't have choices that we feel always feel like align perfectly. You know, I, I ran for office once. And so I'm able to say something like there's only been one candidate that I could have voted for who totally I would totally agree with. Right. And that was only at that time. I wouldn't even agree with myself now from 2000. You know, what did you run for? I, I ran for the state legislature in in, in Minnesota. Oh, okay. And I, I like to joke, like Hillary Clinton back then, I didn't even get the nomination. The, the <laughs> person person who had run the in two thousand eight wasn't going to run in twenty ten. I signed, I registered and went through training and signed up to run. And then he stepped back in the race right at the last day. Oh my god! <laughs> and that meant in our system, in the system here, if you want to be a, a you know somebody who plays by the yeah. sort of gentleman's yeah. rules, you just step aside when the previous person runs. So I, I had to, um, but I got all the way, you know, uh, all the way down this thing and through the training, and all, which I actually want to talk to you about because I too am a Wellstone candidate, a Wellstone trained uh, yeah. candidate went through that. Um, so can we talk about that? Talk about your background a little bit? Um, yes. But first I want to say you should, you should reconsider running for office again one day. <laughs> oh, uh, thank you. I, th I think about it regularly. Um, okay. I'm just currently in a situation where um, any seat that I could run for, I'm happy with the person that's in that seat. And I'm not saying you shouldn't run against somebody, even if you're happy with them. Right. Just, I, I, um, I think I would vote for them, these people, just as well as I'd vote for myself. In, yeah. With the exception of the uh, of county commissioners, which uh, my Wellstone trainer said after I had to stop running, you know, I had to step out of that race, said you could always run for county commissioner, though, because there's some seats there that you might be interested in. Yeah. Okay. And I said, well, well there's workhorses and show horses in politics, and those are workhorses. I'm looking for the like show horse. <laughs> you know, right? uh, yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> but, but thank you. Yeah, I, I, I too think people should run. I, I back in I don't know before we started Vote Common Good, which was 2018, somewhere in 2016, I think I bought the domain for some website called uh, Everyone Should Run dot yeah. dot org, and it was like everyone in the country should register to run for president after Trump was elected. I'm like. We should just have a hundred, you know, 30 million people that say, I want to be the president. It would be better than that guy. Well, like, I not just the, who should we think, vote for. Pick any of the rest of us. Any of us should do it. Uh, well, given the number of Republicans running for the GOP nomination, they definitely looked at your website, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they should just sign up and run. And and we at Vote Common Go, we train candidates and we don't directly recruit candidates, but we kind of try to nudge people into like, hey. Right really do consider running. So I'm, I'm with you on that. So can we talk a little bit about that also via biography? Because what yeah. people might not even know what we're talking about using this insider language about the, about the Wellstone training and so on. Um, there have been different times where there's been more recruitment of candidates and sometimes less recruitment. I think we're in a period where a lot of people are recruiting people to run, run for office and helping them do that. How did you get into the political side of things way back in Portland? And was was Oregon home? Is that did you grow up in a political family? And we've been thinking about I, that kind of thing all along. Yeah, I grew up in Northern California, actually, um, and I ended up 
in Portland for law school because I do have family up there. So I thought I want to go to school where I also have family. I'm a big family person. <laughs> okay. Um, like when you say Northern California, is that is that synonymous with San Francisco and the Bay Area, or even more north, a small, okay. small what used to be a small town called Chico, which is north oh. of Sacramento. Oh yeah. And for, I... for other Californians, they used to make fun of Chico, saying, "Well, you're basically in Oregon anyway." <laughs> yes, yeah, a suburb of a suburb of Portland, right? Yeah. Yeah, my parents are artists, and um, my dad taught at Chico State for. 40 years or something. So I grew up there uh, and they're very political artists, but they are not political activists per se. Um, and I'm kind of the black sheep. I was like, I, you know, we talk about politics a lot in the house, but I wanted to go and knock doors to help get a candidate elected. Um, and it's just another way of being politically active, being an artist or being a door knocker, you know? So yeah. um, when I when I went to law school in Portland, I just kept finding myself continuing to be drawn to volunteering, getting active in the local political community. And I ended up volunteering for an organization at the time called the Oregon Bus Project. And they organized young people to get into politics. And the whole theory was like, too many young people are going to Wall Street. We need these smarts on, on the real streets of America to help, nice. like, help ensure elected officials are governing with people first policies huh. and that we're making change in our community. So I was doing that. And, and it was called the, that, the bus, the, the, the bus project, what the Oregon bus project. And the reason why is because they had a big old bus okay, and they fill it with, you know, young people like high school, college age kids. And we'd go canvas in different communities across Oregon for progressive candidates. Um, and it was a really great way to introduce young people to, to political activism, I to see. build. Yeah. I have friends from the bus project I still have today, and they're very close. Um, and so I, I started getting active in Oregon politics, um, primarily organizing. And I was doing that on the side okay. while I was a lawyer. And turns out I hate fighting. So if you don't like to fight, <laughs> you yeah. might not like being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, um, sort of built into it, isn't it? Yeah. And I was like, I, you know, so I, I started doing family law and I, cause I thought maybe I could help people get into mediation instead of going into court to, to, to figure out their, um, you know, divorce agreements or child custody issues. It's, it's, God bless people that do family law, but it is, hmm. it's hard. It's, it's heart wrenching. You know, people are not their best selves when they're going through divorce wow. or child yeah. custody. And, um, and I was young too. And I thought, you know, I want to do more organizing. I want to bring people together. I want to build coalitions. I want to, you know, help people take collective action to influence decision makers. And so, so how Started. did you know, how did you know all those words? Like for a lot of people, they're just, yeah. they're new to hearing words like collective action and yeah. organizing. And they're like, oh yeah, Barack Obama was made fun of back in 2008 for being an yeah. organizer. Right? <laughs> a lot of people maybe barely remember, remember that, but yeah. that's a whole thing. Like there's a whole lexicon there and a whole group yeah. of organizations that talk like that and do that. Was that in college that that happened? Was there something, um, was, did someone draw you into that? How did you get in that? I don't, 
That's a great question. I mean, I always was doing, I was always up to something like in high school. Okay. Um, I ran for student body, student body president. And then oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> when my, I was a junior. Did you win? Did you win for Madam president? Junior class president? Yes. All right, Madam yeah. President. Do you, do you um, still get to go by that when you go to a class reunion or something? Do people say? <laughs> you know, I haven't been to my reunion, over? but that's a great idea. You should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I like organized a recycling club because I was upset our high school didn't have any recycling facilities. So me and the janitor were like best friends and I was getting all the recycling bins together. All right. All right. Um, but it really, it, and then, you know, I went to college and I worked on a ballot initiative campaign and I don't know, it always started with, I've, I was maybe born and raised with a strong sense of fairness. Hmm. And um, if I don't, if I see something out there that doesn't seem right or fair, instead of complaining, just go fix it. I see. And yeah. and I think that was just part of who I am. It's so funny. I've, I have a seven year old daughter, and I see the same ethos in her. Um, and wow. I don't know if I taught it to her or she was born with it, but um, you know. And you just start picking up the language. But I would say the the Oregon Bus Project. You know how I got into it. I graduated law school and I said, okay, I want to figure out the political scene here. So I called the Democratic Party of Oregon and I saw they had a convention. I said, I want to go, but this is way too expensive. Mm. It was like a $300 ticket. I just graduated school. I had no money. I said, this is silly. You guys are the Democratic Party. Shouldn't it be more affordable to go to your convention? And they said, oh, call the Oregon Bus Project. And I thought, call a bus company? <laughs> 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 said, no, they, they organize get a free ride. People. Yeah, they said no, they organize young people and oftentimes they'll send a whole busload of folks your age to go to the convention for free. And I was like, oh, so I called them. They roped me into volunteering <laughs> and organizing the bus that would go to the convention. <laughs> yeah, I love these stories, right? Yeah. But you know, it all starts just with like a very simple, altruistic desire to do something good. And then you start volunteering for these for organizations that help provide you with the ability to do it and then yeah there is a whole language to organizing yeah. but at the heart of it is just hey let's make something awesome happen in the world and it's going to take more than me to do it so yeah, and, it, and it also represents sort of different views of the world and how change happens right go find the powerful people and ask them to use their power to make things better, that kind of approach, yeah. which is yeah. real, you know, that is real, that that does happen and does work. And there's another way, which is to say, no, we can become the power stru structure if we get ourselves together. And those are two yeah. different like impulses almost, you know, or two different views of how oh, you know. want things to, to go. Mm -hmm. um, have you always stayed confident in the people organizing side or are there moments where you're like, oh, let's just, let's just, you know, <laughs> leverage the the few people that already have some power and get them to do the right thing. Do you did you ever waver in the community organizing and people power wow. side of all this? Of course, I'm human. I mean, yeah. humans are complicated. They're beautiful and they're frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have my I have my best days, I have my my tough days. Uh -huh. Um, but at the end of the day, 
as daunting or overwhelming as things can sometimes feel, I'm always reminded that there's good in all of us. Yeah. And if we can just tap into that, then we're going to be okay. Um, and am I tapping into the good, you know, for the yeah. common? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, we, you know, people ask us cause we, we want people to make the common good, their voting criteria as opposed to some yeah. political identity or something else. And, and if it matches a political identity at a time or doesn't match one, then that's great. But that, what it should be, the common good should drive you. And then people rightly ask, well, what is, what is good? And, and our response is, well, you know, like we, you know, what's good and what's not good. And, and, yeah. and if you don't know, then I don't know, check, check with somebody, but we're not, we don't have a punch list of like, these are the good things and these are the bad things. We just assume that people have it and know it because I don't know. I mean, I've been a pastor for most of my work life and adult life. And I mean, I, I just fundamentally believe that I do. I'm in the people work yeah. business and People are good. Even people I fundamentally disagree with about things that I think really are important and matter and have implication. It's not because there's good people and bad people. It's yeah. because there's there's people, and we can bring about the good in in us and in all of us. And I don't. Know, I hope kind of keep that that window that window open. I hundred percent agree. And I think there are things that divide us and separate us or make it hard for us to see that in other people that we disagree with, but it's still there. Yeah. Um, and I think that we defeat ourselves once we start believing that's not there. Um, or, um, but I, how, I think that's, yeah. how do you deal with this as an organization that isn't, you know, uh, has so many people that pay attention to you, has a lot of influence mm -hmm. and we live in an age in which fear and making a villain, you know, the, the narrative of heroes, villains, and victims is really powerful. It's yeah. what organizes a lot of our society. It's not fundamentally true. And there's a better, a better world than v heroes, villains, and victims, mm -hmm. but there's so much power in telling someone they're the victim. And the reason is that there's a villain out there and you are the hero that's going to come to save the, the victims from these villains and stirring yeah. up fear about what they're going to do next. Like that is alive and well in our social and political and religious uh, systems. Mm -hmm. How do you avoid that as some, like in your role as executive director of an organization that I'm sure feels that pressure a lot and you can, you know, get a lot of response, yep. you know, a lot of donors or a lot of sign-ons or a lot of petitions engaged with that kind of work. Like it, the problem yeah. is it's like a sugar high. It actually works, you know, eat some ice cream and see how you feel after it. You know, you might yeah. not feel good an hour later, but it really pays off in that brief moment with that thing. How, how do you think about all this? Yeah, I, you make a very good point. I think core to organizing strategy is being able to tell the story of opponents, champions, and how we make our, the vision, our vision for the world a reality. Um, and I would say core to digital organizing is being able to tell people what is at risk, what is it, what is threatened and how they can take mm -hmm. action to make sure we're safe. Um, so that is real. I, and move on embodies that a lot in our messaging. I won't lie. If you're on our list, you get those every week, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, we have guardrails to make sure we're not taking it to a place that's actually dangerous. Like um, one of them is we we work really hard to call out actions, 
not individuals. Mm. So these actions are threatening our, our safety and our livelihoods. The action of this Republican represent, representative was inappropriate and dangerous, as opposed to saying this person's a bad person. This yeah. person, you know, so we so we really try to focus. I can't say we do it 100% of the time. Maybe some communications make it out there that didn't get vetted properly, but we really try to make call out the action of our opponents mm-hmm. and not so much the character of or the quality of their character. Um, and the other thing uh, that we do is we try to stay away from hyperbole as much as we can. That being said, today's Republican Party, <laughs> yeah. it's, it is shocking the depths of what they're doing. Yes. And, you know, if, if you don't believe what's happening, you could think that we're using a lot of hyperbole, but we're not, we're, we're, um, we try very hard to be, to ensure that we're delivering astute and accurate political analysis um, mm. that is not, um, uh, butchering the characters of humans, but it's really about the actions. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I, I hear you. I mean, we, we feel that, that same, that same kind of pressure and people feel because of politics and, and other social issues, religion's one of those. And we work in this area of shared space of religion and politics. So we really mm-hmm. feel it sometimes that, um, people uh, are just taught to be afraid of some other people and that misunderstanding or not even taking the time to believe that a person has good intentions at their heart. And look, not everyone does. Some people are intending to do harm in politics, in life, regular getting around. There are people who's at brief moments or consistent moments Mm -hmm. desire to, to harm, to harm others. We're, we're all certainly aware of that. And they're also human beings who have, some other part of their life. And mm-hmm. boy, that's just, it's just hard. Like the being human side of life, it, it's, it's really complicated. And our politics seems to me should help that religion should help that. Oftentimes neither of those, uh, help that, uh, you know, where sometimes it feels like we're flailing in a modern society to figure out how we should be, how we do humaning together. I don't know yeah. how we, how, how we do that kind of, that kind of thing. I don't know. I agree. Ringing, I mean, I also think happening in my world. So, sorry about that. There's <laughs> ringing happening all of a sudden. Here, <laughs> happen in these moments. Pardon me. Yeah, I think um, I completely agree. And I think there are people out there. So I do think there's good in everyone, but not everyone is always operating out of that good. And I think there are people out there that are operating with intentions of either just making money or trying to create chaos for a larger world vision they have. And I think they manipulate our politics or our religions in order to manipulate us and influence Mm. the power Mm. dynamic. Mm. And so that, so for example, the proliferation of all this disinformation online and the basically the execution of the concept of truth over the last several years in society. Yeah. Now we don't know who to believe. I don't know what, what, where my, what, my, what's my right hand, what's my left hand anymore. Everything is subjective. And 
Um, I think some folks are out there using social media to push out falsities that manipulate our politics or our religious beliefs and to divide us mm -hmm. so that they mm -hmm. can better retain power, you know? Um, and that's what's hard. It's like, who do you, who do you trust anymore? And I ultimately think it's somewhat um, ironic that I, as someone who runs a digital first organization, I actually think the best solution is in real life relationships. Mm. That's what's going to save us, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you uh, on that. Oh, one last little area I'd love to talk about. We, as I've said, our organization tries to help people with religious identity and political identity. Sometimes those work well together. They're, mm -hmm. they're raised in a religion and there's a political way of viewing the world and they're comfortable with that and they work together well. Sometimes people aren't comfortable with that or they grow discomforted with, with where it is. And there's a lot of uh, evangelicals and white Catholics who just because they became a Catholic or an evangelical, went to some church or were raised in their family religion, just came with a political identity as like a side. We like to say, like, you know, they pulled up to Wendy's and ordered number two and it just came with the fries and they didn't know they could swap out the fries for a salad. You know, they thought yeah. I have to be a Republican because that's just what comes in the package. And then they reach a point, and this happens to people at a variety of places where that starts to change. And I know many, many people, and we know percentages of evangelical population who are really uncomfortable with being associated with Republican political identity. Some are more comfortable now than ever, but there's a significant portion, we think enough to change a lot of major elections. But for a lot of those people, they've been told their whole life that groups like Move On or Democrats are just the enemy and the other side. Like they've been in the hero, villain, victim story, and they were told those people are the villains yeah. to a really disturbing degree, right? And then they start to change and they're like, okay, I can't stay where I am, but I don't know where to go. Um, and we try to help people make that, make that transition by introducing them to people, seeing more fully the story of the groups that they may have been told were on the, on the wrong side of, of goodness. Mm -hmm. do, do you have any thoughts about that and, and how religion is just sort of so built into the political identity, you know, and, and it's not just with white evangelicals, frankly, you know, I don't know, 80% or more of black church attenders tend to vote for Democrats reliably. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 70 or 80% of evangelical, white evangelicals will vote for Republicans. And religiously, these people are very similar. Mm -hmm. There's other things that, that divide them, race and social experience and so on. So it, 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 it does move both ways. Um, yeah. But there's a whole lot of people that I think want to dislodge their religious identity from their political identity. And mm -hmm. they feel out of place and don't, don't know where to move. And so I don't know. Do you have thoughts about, about all that? Well, first of all, thank you for the work that you all are doing. I think it's so incredibly important and not enough folks are out there doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of people in this country that don't don't have a political home yet and might be searching for that. Um, first on Move On, I'll say at the heart of who Move On is, is our members. So mm -hmm. we don't drive campaigns that our members don't support. So if you see Move On out there publicly driving a campaign, it's because a huge substantial chunk of our membership supports that position. Mm -hmm. So 
our agenda is our member's agenda. <laughs> okay. um, but separate of like who move on is, you know, it is interesting. I do like, I had a roommate in college. I said, oh, are you Democrat or Republican? She's like, well, I, my, my family's Republican. So I'm just supposed to be Republican. Like it was an odd question that I had asked her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like it was a choice or something. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, well I was born Republican. Like as if. Yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. Uh -huh. um, and she was Catholic and you know, what is this? 30 years later, she doesn't identify with the political party at all. Um, but I would say she's more aligned with progressive values, but not politically active. Um, I, I just think it's important to find each other. Like if mm -hmm. you're in a community and, and, and this is you, I'm sure there are other folks there that are feeling the same way, but we're all closeted, you know, yeah, <laughs> and how yeah. do we come out and find each other and build community together? Mm -hmm. Um, and there are plenty of organizations like move on a national organization. We take political action on the national level. So federally with the federal government primarily, but there are local organizations everywhere doing good work, um, that are just about trying to make their community a better place for everybody. And, th and that's, that's what I would say is find, find your people. <laughs> yeah. They're there and they're quiet because they're not sure anyone else agrees with them. Just like I was back in 2002 when I thought mm -hmm. I was silly to not want to go to war with Iraq. And then I realized, well, there are thousands of people in this city, thousands that agree with me. I'm not yeah. alone. You know, yeah. I, I just thought I was because nobody had like raised a flag to say, hey, here, come find me, you know? Yeah. So, so can I tell you a little story about that? When I was running yeah. for uh, for the state legislature, there was a, a, a caucus format. I live in, in Minneapolis area. And so in Minnesota, we do this caucus format just for internal deciding of things, like what topics are going to be brought up. And so there was a particular uh, day when we were all together and people were voting on who was going to move forward and candidates that would move forward. And so, and so uh, if you wanted to raise a topic and have a group of people organize around that topic, you were invited to walk up to the microphone at a certain time and say, here's what I would like to organize around and other people that want to talk about this, come and find me. And then you literally had a little flag that you would hold up, you know, after everybody shared and they could see you in the room and say, I have the red flag or the purple flag or the white flag. And so people had gone, there were a dozen or so that did, maybe 400 people at, at this, at this meeting. And so I got up and said, I'm very interested in organizing people who see their, whose, whose faith matters to them as a voter. And they want to think about how that can help them be more engaged in as a Democrat in democratic circles. Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know, I thought I did a pretty good job of articulating this and presenting it, you know, like everybody else. So then the time comes and everybody holds up their flags, zero people, oh. zero people came to this, this group. And it was a real learning for me. I didn't take it personally. I didn't think, oh, I did something or they're not into me. I was like, okay, this is not a topic. This was in 2009. This was mm -hmm. not a topic that the people in the democratic structure that I was in here locally, you know, but a bunch of people yeah. in, a, in a major metropolitan area were like, yeah, religion is not a thing that we use as an organizing principle. Mm. And I started paying a lot of attention to that. Then that's actually led to the work that, that I do now because I, th and then on the Republican side, I mean, those people, they just use religion as the, you know, the, the given organizing, organizing principle yeah. and they 
organizing yeah. in churches and so on. And I think there's something about that. Do, is that little anecdote anything that you've seen? Like, is there in the yeah, world? I, mean, I, I, so I often, I, Doug, I think you've heard me say this in other places we've been in together. I, I think that um, on the left, <laughs> uh, we have a lot of work to do to create spaces that are welcoming to people that are spiritual, that are religious, to um, embrace that as opposed to make it something that you have to leave at the door when you walk in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how that happened. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like how, where, where in history, what was the moment? Was there a moment or how did that happen that the Democratic Party and the progressive movement and all those on the left said, we're not, I don't think anyone, no one's behind the curtain controlling all of us saying we are not welcoming uh, a discussion of religion here. But for some reason, it feels that way. Yeah. Um, And the best, I have no data to prove this is why. I think the best thing I can say is, is from my own personal story. When I was in high school and in my young adulthood, I searched for the religion that I could believe in. Mm. Um, and I went to church after church, primarily in the Christianity, not in other religions, but, and I couldn't find one that I was comfortable in. And every time I thought I found a church that was for me, then the pastor would say something that I found highly offensive. And right. so I decided at a young, in young adulthood to reject religion because it felt like it was rejecting parts of me and what mm-hmm. I believed. And instead I came over to organize people in the here and now. Mm-hmm. And so I rejected it. And so what does that say about, I don't think I am othering to people who are religious. I, I think I am welcoming to it, but the fact that I don't hold it and yeah. mm-hmm. who I am, that must come out somehow apparently and how we communicate and and be with one another. So I'm not sure, but it's something that we have to resolve because there is a place for all of us in this country, in this world, we can create societies and communities where we can have multi-faith, multi-race, multi, you know, gender, multi-identity communities, and we can thrive. So um, I think we have we all have some learning to do on that front. And I just when I'm in spaces with other progressive organizers, I really welcome people to be reflective and think about how do we do this better on that. Yeah, well, I th- thank you for that. And I, I found you to be very much that way and really appreciate it. And, and that's the that's the funny thing. Like I'm in this. I'm in the system doing this work and I know I can feel it sometimes. I'm working on some projects actually right now where it's really clear when people are like, okay, that guy's in this meeting and we have to tolerate the, you know, yeah. progressive evangelicals for a bit. And I get it, you know. Here, I, though, why? Like, <laughs> uh, I don't, well, look, religious people have earned a reputation for not being good citizens. So um, they've also earned a reputation for being extremely good citizens, but both of those things are true, right? So, yeah. Fair to fair to acknowledge that both of those things are true, right? That there's, um, and, and I know that you know the Democratic Party needs to be a safe place for people who are not religious and are anti-religious because that's a 
significant population too. I was raised in a family like that. I was raised in a totally non-religious family with a dad who was really opposed to religion. Didn't. So maybe my, my youthful rebellion was becoming an, you know, progressive evangelical pastor. I don't know, (laughs) Uh, but I get that. And I know a lot of people are there that way. I mean, my kids identify like that. So I get it. It's, so I'm totally open to that. And, and I also know that sometimes when people are in a space where there, where religion is a problem for them, having it around, it's, it's, it's an, like an allergy and like, so, yep, yeah, I, and I under- people have different experiences. Some people within the left have been rejected by their church or their religion for who yeah. they are. And, and I think that creates a visceral response. So then when they're exposed to religion again, they, they don't want anything to do with it. And so totally. It's, it's very complicated. It's very systemic. It's not, you know, it, and, but I think that in order for us to really build the society we deserve, we have to do some self-reflection, all of us around that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, it was funny because I even thought like, well, like at the time, Nancy Pelosi, who she had just recently been this first time she was the speaker of the house is very out about her Catholic narrative. Like she's really, I mean, if she was an evangelical, people would think, okay, settle it down a little bit, you know, and reminding (laughs) us about your, about your Catholic life and your prayer life and all. So I just assumed that maybe in that, in that democratic space, there was a little bit more room. And so I think we're all, I think we're all figuring it out. And um, I think groups like yours are super powerful and helpful. And I know there's a lot of people involved in that have a very deep religious life. You know, I hang around with a lot of LGBTQ uh, mm-hmm. Christian people as well. And, you know, they're just very quiet. They're very out about their sexuality. That's mm-hmm. how they describe it. And very quiet about their spirituality, right? Like they yeah. just keep that part quiet. And they, they talk about that at our church, you know, but they don't talk about that out in the, out in the rest of life. And I, I, I get it. I just mm-hmm. think, boy, to seed religiously oriented people to Republicans in political spaces is just a, I don't know, it's just a bad strategic choice. So any way we can keep from doing that without, you know, messing up the, the rest of it. I, I certainly don't want to turn the Democratic Party into a into a religious party. It shouldn't, right. it shouldn't be. And, <laughs> I 100% agree with you. Shocking. Yeah. But yes, I think yeah. that's very, very well said. Well, uh, we have much more to talk about, but I think that's all the time we have. Uh, so maybe we can Keep, keep all this up, including the work that both our organizations are doing on raising awareness of the threat of white Christian nationalism in the United States. And it's, it's real. And we talk about that a lot here so people know. And, and Move On also has some, has some uh, real concerns about those issues. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. All right. Till okay. next time. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. All right.